Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. What's it like reporting from Kyiv, Ukraine right now? Ukrainians are known for being like overcritical to the government. And now I see those investigative reporters who were just three months ago fighting with the president, who just stand behind him and behind the government. It's very important for myself and my colleagues to make sure that the world now understands what's happening here, but also later when I think what will happen is there will be war crimes tribunals set up over Ukraine, and our work will be used as evidence um, to make sure that the people know what happened here. Hear from an American war photographer and a Ukrainian journalist. Plus, get some context from the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Before I was a radio host, a producer, an announcer, an engineer, I was a photographer. I took photos of the guests on Connecticut Public Radio as well as events in the community. And because I was self-taught, I relied a lot on mentors. And one of those mentors was Ross Taylor. He'd been photographing for the Hartford Current, but he'd also spent some time in war zones. As he was teaching me about prime lenses and what tweaking the aperture does to the shutter speed and how when framing a shot, I should always think background, background, background. We would talk about his time photographing inside a trauma hospital in Afghanistan, how he'd find a way to both blend in and also to take steps and risks to get even closer to the chaos. He talked about the mission. You know, maybe if more people saw what he saw, war would be a harder sell. I got more brave in my photojournalism and more confident in my skills. And one day I wondered, what if I became a war photographer? And as soon as the thought crossed my mind, a voice in my head, a voice that I've heard from before and since, and it's always been right, said, if in this lifetime you have the choice to avoid violence, avoid violence. So clearly, as you can tell, I did avoid that violence. But why do some people make the opposite choice? What compels some journalists to run towards conflict? Today, you'll meet photojournalist Ron Haviv, who's in Kiev, Ukraine right now. You'll also meet Natalia Humenyuk, a reporter from Ukraine, who's reporting from her country on her country. But first, let's get some context from Bruce Shapiro, He's the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Part of their mission is to not only study the effects of trauma on journalists, but to make sure they and their newsrooms have the resources they need to take care of these people who are heading into war before, during, and after the conflict. I asked Bruce to talk about how many people may view journalists who go into war zones. I think people assume that war reporters are nearly all people with a screw loose, maybe very brave and intrepid, but with 
people who have a little bit of a screw loose. In my experience as a journalistic colleague of war correspondents, um, that's not the case. Most of the conflict reporters I know are actually pretty stable, well-balanced people, often with deep human rights commitments, who happen to be built in a way or have had put together a set of experiences that makes them good at handling fear, that makes them good at crossing lines of culture and working with local journalists, with translators, with fixers, with sources, makes them good at displacement. Most of the conflict reporters I know now are folks, certainly the people you'll see reporting from Ukraine, for example, are people who believe it's important when war is happening that someone be there to witness it, to lay out lines of accountability for atrocity, to bear witness for civilians and soldiers alike. It's a deep set of commitments. And that's probably the most important tool good conflict photographers and good conflict reporters have in their arsenal. That said, there also are some very special skills and some special training that we know are helpful. And this is a way in which journalism has evolved. You know, 20, 25 years ago, the standard method for people going to cover war was go and cover war and show up and hope nobody gets shot. Beginning in the 90s, when news organizations like the BBC and Reuters um, lost a few people under very difficult circumstances in places like Bosnia and places like Somalia, journalism began thinking about the physical safety of reporters, first of all. And that gave rise to what is now an international movement, an attempt to get basic safety training, first aid, other kinds of what are sometimes called hostile environment skills to reporters who are going to cover conflict. Um, there are trainings that news organizations like the New York Times or the BBC will put on for their own staff. NPR does this. There are also organizations that provide it for freelancers. There's a wonderful organization called the ACOS Alliance, a culture of safety, which coordinates safety training for freelance journalists all over the world. And then on top of the physical safety, um, because you know no story is few stories are worth a life. On top of physical safety, more recently in the last 10, 15 years, journalism has come to be think a lot about psychological safety. A lot of our work at the Dart Center, some of it involves training war reporters or training news organizations that are whose managers are sending people off to cover conflict in how to how reporters can take care of themselves, how we can be good colleagues to one another, how to know when the work is getting to you and how to get help when you need it, whether that is while you're covering conflict or more likely afterward, right? It's really in the aftermath of war that often psychological issues emerge for journalists as much as for soldiers or civilians. And so understanding the impact of trauma on journalists, understanding what resources there are and how we can be colleagues to one another and how to get help and destigmatizing that um, have become a big mission within journalism right now, inter internationally. It's really important. 
And I know um, every person's different, but um, from what you've seen in the work you do, in what ways does being a reporter, a photojournalist in a war zone change a person for the worse and for the better? Well, I think that's going to be really individual to the person. I don't think there's any generic answer. I would say, first about photographers in particular, that war photographers, first of all, include some of the most humane and compassionate and committed people I know. Secondly, that our studies show that war photographers are, or photographers generally, are at somewhat greater risk of PTSD or other psychological injury, partly because they're often up close and personal. You know, the famous war photographer, Robert Kappa, said, uh, if your pictures aren't good enough, it means you're not close enough. And that puts photographers at greater personal risk. They also are reviewing their images a lot. And that combination of things means that there may be a greater likelihood of a psychological cost. I've also known war reporters who reported well for years and then suddenly found that one assignment just pushed them over the edge. You think of trauma as the kind of steady drip, drip, drip of someone becoming gradually more edgy or something. That's sometimes the case, but just as often it will be someone who copes, is great, gets meaning and purpose, and then suddenly a switch is pulled. And that can happen. Um, You know, a lot of um, conflict journalists I know, both people with cameras and people with pens, will say that they find covering war easier than being at home, that the baseline survival necessity of war and also the, the highly focused job that they have, the intense focus on getting the story, on getting the image, on getting everything communicated, on getting it right, that in some ways creates a a very black and white world that they know how to navigate and a much more hazardous place psychologically for them sometimes is going home and navigating the laundry with their family, right? That often is where the challenge will make itself felt. There are also a lot of of war photographers and and writers now who do see taking care of themselves psychologically as part of the job and think about, well, what am I doing, what I need to do to kind of grow through this experience and not just be someone who's on an adrenaline high all the time. And there is a, a very thoughtful generation of conflict reporters now who are trying to contend with these things in their work. Covering war can be a profound experience for those who do it, if they're safe, if they're well-prepared, if they're well-supported. Every war is different, I know, but um, how do you see this conflict in Ukraine as a different beast for people reporting there? I think... In one ways, it's like a a lot of the most brutal wars of the last few years in the deliberate targeting of civilians, which has been increasing in conflict. We've certainly seen it in some of Russia's other 
adventures in Georgia and in Chechnya, um, but in other wars around the world. But it's unlike other wars, first of all, in that it's a war in a major European country. It's a war, the first war at this scale involving nuclear powers since World War II, the first war at this scale, and certainly the first you know, conflict since 1989 directly pitting one nuclear power against a nuclear powered alliance. That's different. And everyone's, everyone I know who's covering this conflict is aware of the stakes. But it's also like other wars in that civilians are facing enormous, enormous destruction. And the journalists are determined to not just be there to give us pictures, but to lay out accurate lines of accountability for that. I think there's a couple generations now of human rights reporting that, you know, if you go back to the, let's say, the early Vietnam War or back to World War II, back to Korea, War reporting was often focused on the bang bang, on who's holds what territory. And there's still a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of that in the coverage of Ukraine. And some of it's very important to know, especially in the face of cascades of lies, right? But something that emerged in journalism at the end of the Vietnam War and that has become a central theme is reporting on the experiences of civilians on war crimes. There's a whole sort of curriculum for war crimes that after the Balkans, a group of journalists put together a whole handbook on covering crimes of war. It's also potentially the largest war and so far, well, it certainly is the most sweeping conflict thus far to be powered so profoundly by social media right, in which you have a major power systematically pushing out world-class um, disinformation, not just routine war propaganda, but whole-scale distortions of history, whole-scale distortions of agency, and using social media channels uh, to accelerate that around the world. It's the, the, the first war at this scale in which social media is a combatant force. So that matters. For journalists, it's also not the first war, but probably the biggest, unfortunately, in which this question of trauma and the conflict correspondent is so much on the table. That is a conversation that has been going on since the Balkans and was certainly very true of reporters who covered Rwanda and covered Chechnya and many other conflicts since. But it is a, an area of growing conversation and awareness in the profession. And I think it's something that is going to change some of the decisions that news organizations make and how they deploy their people. Bruce Shapiro, executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Thank you for talking with me and thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Ryan, and likewise. You can see more at dartcenter.org. When we get back. Power will disappear. The mobile phone network will disappear. Uh, water will disappear. 
Um, food is already getting scarce. Most markets are closed. A week ago, there was a premiere, theaters, everything. And then now, you know, there are the checkpoints, people with the guns, tanks, shelled windows in some of the buildings. Meet two people, one from the United States and one from Kyiv, reporting from Ukraine right now. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, what it's like being a reporter in Ukraine right now. Later, you'll hear from a reporter who's a native of Kyiv, telling stories about what she's been seeing happen to her home country and the challenges of meeting deadlines and reaching those whose stories aren't yet being told while trying to keep healthy and sane herself. Right now, though, if you know just a handful of names of war photographers, you probably know Ron Haviv. Ron is the co-founder of the photo agency Seven, which is dedicated to documenting conflict and raising awareness about human rights issues around the globe. He's been in Ukraine since February 15th, and this is the 26th conflict he's photographed over the past three decades. When I talked with him over the phone from Kyiv on March 2nd, I asked him, how is this conflict similar to other ones he's been in, and how is it different? Some of the comparisons have been between Kyiv and, and Sarajevo, which was the capital, is the capital of Bosnia, and which was under siege uh, for a number of years during that conflict. And like when I was in Bosnia in the first days, I thought for sure that the Bosnians would not be able to defend the city and that uh, the Serbian forces would come in rather easily. Just like here, I thought it was very hard to see how the Ukrainians were going to be able to defend uh, Kiev. And it's just been remarkable to see uh, their ability uh, to defend. No matter whether you believe Russia is putting their full might behind it or not, they are stopping uh, the Russian military machine from moving to a degree, certainly at this point. And it's um, evident when you are on the streets or in shelters or with volunteer forces or so on that the belief in Ukraine, the belief that they can defend, the belief that they're in the right uh, is uh, completely prevalent over everything else. Will you talk about some of the logistical challenges for reporters right now? Um, there's a shortage of uh, vehicles. There's a shortage of translators. Uh, there's a shortage of hotel rooms. All these different things are added into the kind of what are we going to do today? How are we going to show the story of the Ukrainian people today? And one of the things that we keep waiting for, and luckily has not yet happened, but is expected to happen any day now, is that power will disappear, the mobile phone network will disappear, uh, water will disappear, um, food is already getting scarce, most markets are closed. It's, it, you know, there are definitely logistical issues for us as journalists and and, and working here, but of course, it's no comparison, obviously, to the people that are, are living through this, especially those that are deciding not to stay, who are packing one or two bags and getting on the next train to wherever just to leave, uh, and maybe never being able to come back. They have no idea if they're going to come back. So it's just um, trying to, for me, my, my interest is 
not on uh, the guy with the gun, but on the impact of what the guy in the gun is doing, which is on the civilian life. So here it's about people taking shelter, about people leaving. It's about uh, daily life being affected. Everything that we in the United States take for granted to some degree, sort of certainly pre-COVID of um, the ability to go to the hospital, go to the dentist. Um, you're, you're pregnant and you're going, you know, there's a maternity ward to go to and so on. All these things are now completely up in the air. You have uh, pediatric units that are now been moved into basements, which are surrounded by, you know, heating pipes and coils and, you know, it's a basement. But there's pediatric units there with newborn, I saw a photograph, five-week-old uh, newborn twins who are suffering uh, from an ailment in the pediatric uh, unit and shelter. And so kind of deciding what to do, not only for myself, but for myself and my colleagues, is we want to make sure that, you know, people are looking past the battle and, and, and really understanding that this is the capital of a European country that, you know, two weeks ago when I arrived, I was having some of the best food that I've had um, in the country and with people that were happy and, you know, excited about their future and so on and couldn't even believe, would refuse to accept to believe that this was going to happen and then two weeks later, their lives are completely changed. As a photojournalist, you are up close and personal with people and what you're seeing. Uh, to the degree to which you can, how how do you how do you see it affecting you emotionally? Well, to be honest with you, I've always sort of said to myself that if I can, if I walk into a situation like what I'm seeing here, and I don't feel anything, and I'm just here to try to make money or so on, it, it's time to, to find another job where I can make, certainly make more money. You need to be emotionally connected, or I need to be emotionally connected to the people that I'm photographing. And so the, my hope is that my emotional connection to what I'm seeing comes across in my photographs that will then affect you as a viewer in a similar way. I think that is one of the keys to making a successful photograph. And I think that, yeah, it is, difficult to see this because I've seen it so many times. I think given that it's Europe, so obviously it has a lot of reminders of the breakup of Yugoslavia where in Kosovo, I documented 800,000 people being expelled you know, from their homes. It was very, very similar uh, in that way. During the breakup of Yugoslavia, we're like, oh, it's, you know, it's, 19, it's almost the year 2000. Like, how could this be happening? And now here we are, you know, 20 two years later and we're saying the same thing and it's sad and it's sad because one of the things that I always hope is that not that I believe that photographs themselves can change the world on their own, but they can, they play a very, they can play a very big part in the teaching of history and reminding people, holding people accountable and so on that the photographs that we did earlier in the nineties and, and other places in the early two thousands um, did not, create enough of a warning of look at what men can do to men. And that takes an emotional toll on me without, without question. I know you've been arrested dozens of times. You've been held as a prisoner at the end of the first Gulf War in Iraq. And, and of course, you've had colleagues killed in the line of work. Have you ever feared for your life? I am uh, in fear on a story like this. I, I'm going to be fearful for my life until until I get out of Ukraine, without question. So 
So I'm, I'm constantly afraid. I try to use that fear to ensure that I make uh, smart decisions. I'm not one that believes it's worth dying for a photograph. I would like to be alive, uh, take a photograph the next day. And using fear as a kind of a reminder, like, you know, maybe I shouldn't go there or maybe I shouldn't go out today. Or and everybody has their own internal clock, their own internal warning system that they need to pay attention to. Now, of course, I'm always at the benefit of having an American passport and, and financing and so on. Um, so I'm always going to be better off than often the people that I'm photographing. And that is both a, a benefit, but also very difficult at times, especially when leaving a situation where you know that I can get out and they, they can't. Here at the moment, we're all the same. There's no, I have no special rescue plan or something like that. I would have to... Uh, sorry, some shells are landing now. Nearby. You know, I have to get, I would have to leave the way everybody else leaves and we'll have to see what happens. When you hear shelling in the background, like we did just then, what, what's going through your mind? I don't think I'm staying anywhere near any major target. So I think I'm relatively safe or hope that I'm relatively safe. But if it seems like it's getting closer, then I'll, I would um, go. I'm not in the shelter at the moment, then I would go into a shelter. How, how do you know when it's time to leave? And I know you can't anticipate what, what, what it'll feel like when you leave Kiev or Ukraine, but... Well, I think there's, there's a combination of several things. One, probably the most important thing is personal awareness of how you're doing mentally, emotionally, and physically health-wise. And there has been points in my career where it's like, you know, I'm too exhausted to be here. I need the story's going to keep going, but I just am not doing myself or the story any good, and, and I, I need to take a break. Other times it might just be, you know, we're waiting here to see if Kiev becomes a city under siege. Will the Russians completely circle it and? There won't be any way out. Nobody knows if that's going to happen. Or will they always allow a humanitarian corridor for people uh, to leave? So always paying attention to that, to seeing what, what happens. Sometimes it's an hourly by hour basis. Or do we wait, assume that the Russians are going to hit this, this place, hit Kiev very hard for a few days and then be able to take it. And then we can come out of the shelters and then see what the next stage is which nobody knows. On the journalist side, nobody knows how the Russians are going to treat us. Will all journalists from NATO countries be arrested? Will we be deported? You know, we, we don't know. There's no precedent. So a lot of these unknowns are very stressful. And again, you know, comparison to what the people themselves are going through or the people fighting. But in terms of our little rules of journalism, there's a lot of unknowns of what's going to happen. Uh, you and I are talking on March 2nd, and the last picture you posted on your Instagram um, was of pediatric patients and their mothers in a basement used as a bomb shelter at a children's hospital in central Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, there are no shortages of difficult images for anyone to process, but when you're in the presence of children and their caretakers in such a vulnerable position, um, what changes in you in that kind of situation 
that's different than any other in this context? You know, when you talk about this idea of innocence, certainly the children are, are the most innocent. They've done nothing to deserve this. And that's, you know, one of the more tragic things. The small benefit is the children often are also the most resilient. That, um, you know, they're laughing, they're playing, they're upset, of course. They know things are wrong. But if we're lucky and things could get back to normal or the Russians leave in the next few weeks, then hopefully this will just be a bad memory for many of them. But for those of that, those that are sick, those that need treatment for oncology patients or, you know, there are people I'm sure that were planning to start uh, chemotherapy next week and so on. And all of a sudden, all that's disappearing. When you see sick children, this next question, uh, I sh- want to qualify it by saying that I hope um, it's a long time until we actually find out the, the true answer of it. But um, because, of course, the nature of your work is so dangerous, um, I think about those pictures, you know, in that children's hospital. And, you know, what if that's your last picture, right? And I wonder when you ponder that terrible thought, sorry, um, what do you hope the message is of your last photo, of your final photo? Well, I haven't really been pondering that, but thank you for bringing that up. Very welcome. Great. <laughs> You're many time. But, um, no, but I mean, not, not necessarily just my last picture, but hopefully my body of work, which, you know, covers um, different conflicts around the world and, and the impact of that on people and work that has been Used uh, some of the work is, has been used in war crimes tribunal to indict and predict war criminals and so on. And I hope the work has impact. I mean, that's that's the goal. The worst thing for me is to think that people don't pay attention, don't look at the photograph, are not affected by it, whether from here or from other places. And so the goal always is that you want to contribute. You want to, to say something about what you've seen and hope that this photograph or these photographs um, will teach people. Uh, enlighten them. Maybe they'll vote in a different way or donate in a different way or educate their children in a different way. And hopefully at some point we'll reach through not just my own work, but everybody's work, have some sort of impact and make the world a better place. And, and while I realize it's, it's a bit of a pipe dream and I don't think it's completely naive, I think it, it does, and my work has, I know, has had some impact. I want it to continue to have impact. Uh, that would be always my, my, my hope. Last picture, first picture, second picture, whatever. When you think about the journalists who live and work in Ukraine right now, who are from there, who maybe up until 2022, you know, they, they covered sports or politics or, you know, even some violence, but not on the level that they're facing now. What do you hope those people can keep in mind as they, rise to this occasion, so to speak? I, I honestly can think of nothing more difficult than photographers who are documenting conflict in their own home. I think it's probably the hardest thing to do. You have no uh, safe place to escape to. If you have a family, your family's being affected. You're going out and photographing other families being affected. Um, it is very, very hard to do. But especially at times like this, it's important that the Ukrainian photographers are able uh, to tell their stories. Uh, they speak the language, they understand the culture, 
they understand the history in a different way um, than I do. It doesn't make their photographs more valuable or less valuable than mine, but I think all of us should have a voice, the observer from outside and the people um, that live here that have uh, a different way about speaking about what's going on in their country. It's incredibly, incredibly uh, important, and it's incredibly difficult. I experienced it to some small degree with 9-11 in New York. I live in New York, Um, and all of a sudden the war came home. And I've understood to a degree working with colleagues who were based in the place that I was working, a little bit of what they were going through. It was really um, the little experience with 9-11 kind of made me appreciate their experience on a whole different level because often say the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the former Yugoslavia, or hopefully not this, but possibly this, that goes on for months or years and so on. It is is hard, but their voices are absolutely necessary and and needed uh, to be seen. I've asked everything I can fit into our time together. Um, Is there anything that I missed or any sort of takeaway you want to make sure people who are listening absorb? I I think that this um, this is a remarkable event that's happening. We obviously are seeing the world possibly change in terms of uh, global strategy and so on. But I think also that the public, the people that are listening to this show or listening to the BBC and others are incredibly important in the sort of coalition that if you are someone who believes what is happening is wrong, then you certainly should make an effort um, with letting your your congressman or senator know or donating funding to an organization that's working here or something like that. Because it is does seem at this point that even based on the UN vote that happened today, there's 141 countries in the world that are against uh, what's happening. And it's important to keep up that momentum because I think that part of the Russian strategy is for that to break apart at some point, that it's not possible to keep lasting. Um, and I think it's important to make sure that it does. Ron Haviv, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for all you do. I hope you can stay safe. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ron Haviv joined me from Ukraine, and our conversation was recorded on March 2nd. After the break. But I'm panicking about, like, not possible to make the story tonight, postponing it for tomorrow. But what if this story in the morning would be totally outdated because something else would happen? I have, like, seven hours of light without curfew when I want to be out. But the most important is, like, you're thinking how to stay where you can tell the story. And it's really, 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 really difficult always to be on the story. You feel like all the time you're missing something. Reporting from your country on your country. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're hearing what it's like reporting from Ukraine right now. We just heard from Ron Haviv, a photojournalist from the United States, and I also wanted to know what it's like reporting on your home from your home. Natalia Humenyuk is a Ukrainian journalist, and she's the founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab, which promotes constructive discussion around complex social topics. When we recorded this conversation on March 2nd, I told her how I was trying to imagine if Hartford was being attacked. What 
would it feel like to report from my city on my city? And I can't sustain the thought for more than a second. And so I wanted to know what words she could put to what all this feels like. It's very hard, and particularly because, you know, especially within the last years, the capital, Kiev, was very much like a high, vibrant city, uh, you know, very cool in Eastern Europe. You know, we have all the Hollywood celebrities and superstars from Miley Cyrus to anybody, you know, filming the their videos here, you know, like, so it was like super cool. Uh, it's very hipsterish, it, like not the whole country, but the capital. And also the full country has never had the conflict since the Second World War. So that is really shocking how fast the situation could change. That, you know, like a week ago, there was a premiere, theaters, everything. All these reporters who were coming and waiting, anticipating something, like really enjoyed it. And then now, you know, there are the checkpoints. Uh, there is curfew, people with the guns, the territorial defense, but not just them, like the really military tanks, shelled windows in some of the buildings. Uh, not anywhere. Fortunately, Kiev is still not really to the extent we see how it's happening with other towns. They are still coming. It's not yet, you know, close, any, any close to encirclement. We've been seeing images of uh, Molotov cocktails and citizens who have started fighting back on their home turf. Does that surprise you to see that? Maybe the scale is surprising. Maybe some things are... um, I'm not surprised. We've been to the, you know, peaceful, let's say, non-violent revolution, which in the end got kind of difficult, especially after the president authoritarian pro-Russian president eight years ago ordered to uh, shut the people. So we it was eight years ago. So we had this kind of experience of uh, people being determined. But look, the difference was that it was just one square, like really literally one square in one town. And now it's a whole country. Uh, but Odd enough, oddly, uh, it's, it's very weird to say, but by the way, the Molotov cocktails, they work too, and they can deter the tanks better than something else. And I've seen this cute video. I can't imagine it differently. We have a former prime minister um, who is like this, has this image of like the good manager, you know, like the good guy who is running the company well, like super civilian. And he recorded this video on Facebook page how he's teaching the citizens to make this lot of cocktails. And that was just like <laughs> very weird, but in a way, nice way, because it, you can't imagine this guy doing this, like really, uh, which is also an interesting thing for us today. You know, Ukrainians uh, are bringing probably a totally different topic, but it's a bit puzzling from a journalistic point of view. Ukrainians are known for being like, overcritical to the government you know like it's in our dna and especially journalists like the only thing journalists do they complain how bad the politicians are you know like they it's just like a vulgar to say something good about any politician <laughs> like really and now i see those 
investigative reporters who were just three months ago fighting with the president, who just stand behind him and behind the government. Totally, they've been like on totally other side. And even for me, like as citizens, we find it like that they're doing a good job and we are like really proud by him, by president, by minister of defense, by minister of healthcare, minister of digital transformation, like and mayors of the towns. So all people we were really probably didn't trust in the peaceful time, feels like they're doing their best. And it's very strange. We've never been in a situation when we, we would, you know, like independent reporters. I'm not speaking about like propagandists or those people who are paid in their like private channels, uh, that we are like that. And I even didn't know what to think about that. So would you say that like a dream come true would be to get to a place where you could <laughs> criticize the government again? Yeah, yeah, I know, because I, I'm quite sure that it's temporary. Soon the situation would be different. Of course, the criticism would be uh, back, but the shared experience would remain. Just like really, if you really live through something like that uh, with some people and you saw what they were doing, how, how were they acting? You know, you still will have this respect unless they really do something totally wrong. I wonder if you could talk about what the best case scenario is, knowing what you know, and what the worst case is, knowing what you know. <sighs> the best case scenario is, well, let me first go to the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is really the really, really heavy shelling and destroying large part of Ukraine, including the capital, including cultural site, with massive amount of casualties. You know, to extent when it would be clear for Russia that Ukraine is unconquerable. And that would be a huge loss. I do not see any scenario which, you know, countries occupied. And like, or seriously, they are in control. Maybe, you know, like with the worst case, it would be heavy bombardment. There would be some fictional government lasting for a couple of weeks, you know, which would never run anything. And that would be this uh, guerrilla war. That's really the worst case scenario. The best case scenario it's really in very short term. So the faster it is, it's the better that Ukraine is capable with enough amount of the uh, weapon uh, to stop this part of the Russian army, which is attacking us at the moment, like those troops which are ready now. Uh, that probably would be some negotiations. Uh, I don't know about what, but that there would be opportunity to deter it with, of course, probably some further sanctions on those companies which are living in Russia. Uh, but in the short, short term, the only thing which is hard to tell from, to me, but the only thing which is really deter and save lives is really weapon, you know, like the, the air defense system is the one which saves the uh, buildings from being destroyed. Javelins, they save villages or, or towns from being occupied by, by tanks. Um, so that's how it is. 
What would you say is the biggest practical and personal challenges you're experiencing as a reporter in your own country right now? There is, it's harder to find the local voices. It's harder to, you know, just really give the understanding of the whole situation. That's one point. Um, it's physically very difficult. So, for instance, in Kiev, we have a curfew. There should be permission to, uh, you know, drive. We can get this credential, but there are still airstrikes. You need to have a car. You need to have a car with a fuel. With the, you need to have, like, bulletproof vest and, jet and, and helmets. It's not enough of them. You're concerned, what if the... You know, the internet would be shut down. How would you work? A lot of companies, uh, I mean, that was a smart decision. They relocated from the capital to different parts of the country. They are not absolutely safe, but it's very hard to work in the newsrooms, which are, um, you know, somewhere um, working remotely. And can you imagine, like, having a capital, like a media capital where everybody's there and then almost everybody has have to move so there are not enough like really reporters on the ground uh, we're all talking about kiev but around the capital there are like a dozen of different uh, towns which you know been attacked and it's very hard to reach them like really to drive there sometimes they are blocked and you know that people there are the most vulnerable And you can't get through. Uh, and it's really also painful for many to, you know, stay and report from their basement or from the house because you want to be on the spot. You want to be there. It, it just logistically incredibly difficult. I mean, it's financially, to be honest, not very easy. Uh, you also need to have, you know, a, a proper place. Um Some people needed to move. I needed to move out because, you know, my, 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 my apartment was based in inconvenient place where I'm cut off from everybody, you know, like from all friends, from people who have cars. So I, I, I needed to move. So there are so many of these practical issues and then you need to write and you need to be there and you need to follow news. Or sometimes you're sitting in the bunker or in the basement and you know the story somewhere else, but you are without a car or without a gear. It's not like you feel powerless. I, I also think that we are. it's better for us. It's definitely better for us uh, because if we were not um, working, I think emotionally it would be way more difficult. Oddly enough, uh, I'm nervous more about deadlines than about anything else. And I know it's just like psychological. It's not really the real, but I'm panicking about like not possible to make the story tonight, postponing it for tomorrow. But what if the story would be out of date? Oh, I written a story at night. Uh, I'm, I'm sleeping, I don't know where. And what if this story in the morning would be totally outdated because something else would happen? So, you know, like, can I really do that before the curfew? Oh, I, I have like, seven hours of light without curfew when I want to be out. Uh, should I really stay and talk to the people, you know, be online with my laptop or uh, should they just use this time to be away? Uh, any contact, any call during this time makes you really nervous. Like you're filming something, somebody calls you and you think like, okay, this is so precious. Uh, don't distract me. And, But the most important is like you're thinking how to stay where you can tell the story. And it's really, 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 really difficult.
always to be on the story. You feel like all the time you're missing something. Well, is there anything else you want to add? I know we could probably talk for a long time and we've already gone over, but is there anything that you want our listeners to hold on to from this? Really, I want to speak about the cause um, that, how to say it, um, it's not because I'm Ukrainian, it's conflict in Ukraine. But I think this war is not really, you know, like there is a usual story which you can do as if there is any major crisis, you know, refugees, people who are vulnerable, wounded. But I think in this regard, it's also so important to speak about the resilience of people. It's so strange to say, but it's true that like, if you really speak about what are people fighting for, of course, it's for their country, it's for their security, if it's for safety of their families, it's for not having the invaders here. But in the end, it's for their right to be as they are. And what we have fought against is like about denying our right to decide what you know government we should have, what life we should have. Uh, could we have be an independent country as we are? Uh, could we just have our own history, but not an imposed one? Um, so that's really it. That's, that's, that's really the, the kind of the very practical meaning of democracy, which could be seen, you know, on the ground with the real action uh, of the people. Natalia Humenyuk. Thank you so much for what you do, and thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. Bye. Natalia Humenyuk joined me from Ukraine. We recorded that conversation on March 2nd. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious or listen anytime at ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your thoughts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.